The fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God through the cross and that he's reconciled us to one another through the cross. And all that's left for us to do is express that, not not win that. And so, yes, there's a lot of problems around in the world and a lot of people are offering solutions to those problems. And we should look at the problems and we should look for solutions. But at the end of the day, the most pressing need that every human being has is they need to know Christ. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It's fantastic to have you along with us, whether you are listening to us on your favourite podcast app or watching us on YouTube. Uh, apologi- apologies for not being on last week. We had a few technical difficulties, but we're back. Here we are at Sorrel Revival Church in the Third Space Studio. I'm here with Stu and Tim rejoining us again. How are you guys? Good. How Good. are you, Joel? <laughs> you always never know which one to answer then, do you? That's Sorry. right. No, that's, no. We look at each fault. other, they look at you. I think, I feel like we're in a corner of Soul Revival Church, and I feel like we are in the coldest part of the church. Would I you think that's agree? possible. Yeah. My hands are very cold. <laughs> it, is, it is quite cold. Tim, you are hiding yourself. I'm hiding there. my little blanket under here as well. <laughs> you have um, a warm heart, though, boys. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, so we'll stay, we'll stay warm throughout the podcast. Um, we're going to continue our series in Whatever Happened to Evangelism, and we've kind of, as we looked across history, we've now almost brought ourselves up to the present and we've actually entitled this episode prior to even starting no wonder people don't want to share their faith and i am very excited to hear why we we are thinking that but before we get into that we try to start with a story or a cultural artifact and this time we have chosen the george floyd protest which happened in uh, 2020 and 2021 and the black lives that movement that it kicked off what uh what is your thoughts on that and why are we talking about that today Stu? Yeah, so we were looking for something that kind of brings it all together for us and there's a controversy here that really polarised public opinion. Mm. So yeah, the George Floyd protests were a series of protests and civil unrest uh, after the the killing of George Floyd by uh, a Minneapolis police officer and that was in May 25th, 2020. And then the protests sparked from that, started in May 26th and just spread right around America and right across the world, actually. So it was uh, Black Lives Matter was a movement that was already protesting against police brutality. And um, this movement had a big uh, impetus Mm. during that uh, period of time. And there were civil unrest across lots of um, states of America, particularly in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the event took place. Um, George Floyd was a 46-year-old African-American man who was murdered while he was being arrested by Derek Chauvin and he was obviously a Minneapolis uh, police department officer and what was quite shocking about that is that while he was being arrested he was crying out for help and uh, the police officer just wouldn't move his knee off his neck and so uh, what sparked so much of the anger and outrage about that was that someone had an iPhone and videoed the whole thing and uh, we're left wondering you know, would that event have actually sparked as much uh, international condemnation if they hadn't have videoed it? And so a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the invention of the iPhone and little did the people who invented the iPhone think that it could be used in contacts like that to capture such a terrible incident. Well, because it was on video and it was filmed, uh, as uh, it was filmed, it was like pretty... Um, confronting and I think it really struck a nerve across the world with lots of people who were just outraged by it and yeah it led to a whole heap of civil unrest. Um, In April 2021 Chauvin was actually found guilty of second degree murder. Uh, The court court found him guilty of the exact words were second degree murder, unintentional murder, third degree murder, second degree manslaughter. So he was actually sentenced to 22.5 years in prison and he's only got the opportunity for release after parole after 15 years for the second degree murder. So it was quite a really significant moment. And um, yeah, the police brutality became a massive topic of conversation. Uh, Lack of police accountability, uh, inequality and racism became a really big topic. And it actually was, um, yeah, that led to the protests where there were demonstrations, there was civil disobedience, there was burnings of cars and buildings even, I think. Uh, Online activism, strike action. I mean, I remember actually as the incident started to unfold on the internet, the first thing I heard of it was I started scrolling through Instagram and I saw black squares on Instagram and I didn't know what they were. And a lot of my friends were putting black squares and other people that I was watching. And it turned out that that was the Black Lives Matter 
social campaign around it as well. So here we have a confluence of some of the things that we've been talking about, the technologies of uh, the iPhone, the technology of social media is able to actually spread information about this kind of stuff. And it led to some massive repercussions like we were talking um, people calling for budget cuts and reforms in the police department. Uh, there were even plans to disband the Minneapolis Police Department and there was a provision for a city charter amendment passed by the Minneapolis City Council for that. Um, they were going to have a referendum on um, uh, some of these things. There was this big debate that broke out in the media with um, left-wing and right-wing media really polarising around some of these issues. And um, I think some of these issues have also then started making people in the church really think about where do we stand on some of this sort of stuff. I mean, some of the things that that were led to not just Im impacting on civil unrest and in politics and on the media, but also social uh, things like people tearing down statues, conversations about even across the Atlantic in England, it's motivated people to start talking about should slave owners have a statue to them. So people were in mobs just tearing statues down. They weren't kind of voting on it in councils and having a conversation about it. They were just going and tearing them down. And even Winston Churchill's statue was boarded up because they thought they were going to vandalise that. In Australia, Captain Cook had blood thrown on his statue and there was a whole heap of debate around should we take down Captain Cook's statue. So, so yeah, I think Christians, as, as we've been looking on with that, um, will have, according to what we've been talking about in the series so far, we'll probably have three, there will obviously be more approaches to it, but three main approaches. I think what this sums up is that... Um, during the 2010s there's a new rise of Christian fundamentalism where uh, we talked in earlier episodes, Marsden defined fundamentalism as angry Christians. So people who are Christians who are evangelical, sorry, angry evangelicals rather. So angry evangelicals who get angry about, say, a statue being torn down might actually have a reaction against the Black Lives Matter movement for going too far. And so they might get politically active to to do that. Um, some a fundamentalist response doesn't always have to be angry and 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 uh, in the sense that you know people take to the streets and and vent their anger uh, but some a fundamentalist response in England was that there was some moves to tear down the statue of the man who started the scouting movement in England uh, I can't even remember what the guy's name is but maybe one of you guys can look it up Baden Powell I think his name was anyway there was a statue of him on the side of a river and uh, there was talk about maybe throwing his statue into the river, I think, if I understand the story well enough. And um, a whole heap of uh, elderly retired ladies got together and sat and knitted around the statue <laughs> so they could protect it from people <laughs> taking it down. So that's just bizarre. Like, it's just a, a crazy funny story of how these movements can have all sorts of different reactions. But yeah, that was, a, I suppose, a more conservative response against the tearing down of statues. But on the other hand, we have, you know, and that apparently that was a group of Christian ladies who were doing that. But apparently, on the other hand, we've got Christians who are marching in Black Lives Matter protests and, and aligning themselves with that cause, very angry at what happened to George Floyd. So in the 20th century, Marsden would say that fundamentalists in the 20th century would be angry evangelicals who have um, become politically active on the right. We've looked at that story over a number of episodes, but now what we've also got is angry evangelicals on the left as well, so that are really angry at the police, angry at the racism that they saw in that uh, arrest and that uh, murder of George Floyd. And so uh, there's no wonder evangelicals uh, are not always feeling comfortable to share their faith. No one, you know, we talked at the beginning of the series how people are feeling cautious about sharing their faith and as you see the dynamics and the intrigue around all these things it's no wonder Christians are not sure sometimes what is the right response to these things I mean the the the, the football in England where people are taking the knee uh, in Australia sports people are taking the knee uh, that was a symbol of protest against uh, the the, the murder of George Floyd. So, yeah, Christians are rightly going, what, what, what do we say? What's, what's our word? And I think what we're saying in this podcast is, what do we say? Well, we go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in Jesus and repent of our sins. And I think that's going to be really fun today to kind of try and bring some of these threads together. And just the, the leader of the scout movement, you were right, Robert Baden-Powell was his name. Mm -hmm. So you got that right, well done, good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, you might put a show link of uh, maybe a newspaper article of those, those older yeah, ladies. Yeah, I'll definitely have to find that. He looks, like a, he looks like a real stand-up 
uh, English dude, just looking at his photo on Wikipedia there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's interesting when you talk about the interconnectedness of the George Floyd, um, uh, the the policeman kneeling on his neck only became to prominence because it was filmed by someone. That's something mm. we've talked about a lot. But I also thought it's worth um, maybe talking with you guys. It, it, it seems a lot to do with the culture war. It's mm. and I, what that's a word that's thrown around a lot at the time. I mean, I heard someone talking about it in relation to an energy crisis in Australia this week um, with the new government coming in and talking about that. But what I thought would be worth doing is talking about what is a culture war and why do, why is it becoming so important now and that Christians are finding it hard to understand where they should be um, aligning themselves yeah. during that time. Yeah. Do you got any ideas, Tim, about the culture war? What do you think it means? Oh, um because so the reason I ask the question is because I don't really know. Like yeah, we can go, yeah, oh, yeah. it's all the culture wars. Yeah. But what does that? What do you think that means? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've got a, a working definition of it. But I guess in the, what I see in the way it's playing out is um, we've got this um, plurification of our society. And so, and so if we go back a little bit, there's um, a sociologist called Peter Berger, um, and he's particularly a religious. Uh, sociologist of religion amongst a number of other things but one of his key ideas um, that I've just been reading about this week actually was his, this idea of a social um, uh, the sacred canopy which is sort of over the top of society um, and what is happening underneath the sacred canopy if I understand his argument correctly is um, the people under the canopy have a fairly uniform understanding of the world, the way the world works, um, of meaning and values um, and philosophy of life underneath the sacred canopy. His argument is that um, with the plurification of society in the last hundred years is that the sacred canopy has collapsed. And as the sacred canopy collapses, what you end up with is um, you don't have this protection of a general understanding of um, me and my neighbours are all generally thinking the same things. We generally have the same values. We generally have the same belief systems. Um, and it's very hard. I think the implication is it's very hard to pass on your beliefs and values to your next generation in community when you're not sure if the community shares all of those particular beliefs and values. Takeaway from all of this is we have, because of this purification, we have this thing where we, we're living alongside our neighbours and we have very starkly different understandings of the world and starkly different understandings of what is important and what is valuable, what is good and true and beautiful and the opposite, what is um, ugly and deformed and should be opposed. And when we've got all of these, um, and, and well, I'm talking particularly from a Western sort of context here, um, 21st century Western context, but this is, when we have that, we get the, the culture war comes in because we do want to hold our beliefs firmly. I mean, I believe what is true is true. Um, well, that's important to me. Um, and my neighbour believes what they think true is true and it's important to them. But when we disagree about that truth, um, then we're trying to work out, well, how do we now relate to each other in that um, society? Um, and this comes, there's a whole lot of implications of this. We talked a few um, episodes back about um, what in America they call the great sort, where people want end up, if they've got the ca capacity, they move to different um, suburbs, locations, cities, towns, states where there are more people just like them. Um, and that helps to start to help you know that your neighbours have similar values to yourself. Um, and so we've got this great sort where you've got um, very uh, progressive states, very conservative states, very conservative cities in amongst a liberal state, very liberal cities in amongst conservative states. But you've got all these kind of different interesting demographics going on. Um, but in terms of the culture war, um, we, as you, you get further to the extremes of the, the left and the right divide, um, you're so starkly opposed to the other um, that um, you, you want to oppose everything that they say and disagree with what they say. Um, and me, for me to be right means that you need to be wrong. And so this is us versus them. And this is, um, I guess in one sense, this is kind of fundamentalism, but not just a fundamentalism on the right. It's a fundamentalism on the left as well, because you get this us versus them um, tension. Uh, and so the people who are just like me, who share the same vision and values as me, we're a tribe, we've got to stick together and stick close, and we must oppose those who are different to us. And so you get this idea of not just, it's, it's not a, 
a cultural discussion. It's not a cultural uh, chat over coffee. It's a cultural war. Mm. Um, and that war language really brings out that hostile tension. Is it enemies? It, yeah, they're enemies. If you're at a war, you're at enemy with each other. I mean, we've got right now, we've got um, Russia and Ukraine at war. They're enemies. They're seeking to um, to fight over particular geographic areas of the Ukraine um, and people are dying from it. Now, we take that war language and bring it into the culture. If I'm at war with my neighbour, um, I may not do physical violence to them, um, but I have the same kind of mentality. I've still got this, they're my enemy. And so if the people on the other side of a political divide or a social divide or a particular issue are my enemy, that caused me to treat them in a particular way. Um, And this is the problem with both, both ends of the spectrum in terms of when they get to this fundamentalist culture war where the other person is my enemy, um, it's really hard to then obey Jesus' command to love your enemies and to um, be at peace with one another. There's all these verses that we talked about right at the start of this season where um, Paul and Peter as well are talking about how to live at peace amongst the the people that you're with um, and to, you know, seek their they're good and to actually just live peaceful lives among the pagans and all of these kinds of things. And when you're in a culture war scenario, um, that's not how we're encouraged to live. And I suppose for me, the most frustrating thing about the culture warring is that you have this this bundling of evangelicalism and the right. Um, and as Stuart said, we've also now start to get a bundling of um, people who will have the evangelical label, but also on the left. Um, who are being more defined by a culture war narrative than they are by the words of scriptures. And so what I find hardest in, I listen, you know, as I'm listening to commentary and watching this play out, is there's a lot of people in this culture war who will wear the label of Christian or evangelical um, and yet are not living out that, that peaceableness and that loving of enemies that the scriptures is full of. And, and that's the thing that I find really um, hard to to watch and to listen to and mm. consume. Mm. Stuart Tim's talked about that plurification of society, which has probably mm. led towards this. I think the the internet is very much the fuel on the fire to make mm. that happen. Do you think, we, and I mean it's happened very much so since the 60s, is stuff that we've talked about previously. Mm. Do you think that there are more things that we disagree on as a society? Well, I, I talk more and more with people in ministry who are saying they're noticing a change in the conversations in local churches, that right. the kind of issues that Tim's talking about, there is um, a more, uh, there is more heat around certain conversations. Um, some people would even uh, challenge terms like culture war. So there are people who say it's, it's right-wing people who call progressive, uh, uh, progressive ideas uh, and challenge them call them out and challenge them and then they're the ones who are responsible for using the term culture war some some of the more progressive uh, people on the left might um, also react against terms that are used like woke like some people call the bundling of progressive issues a woke narrative Um, that comes from uh, you know a route that we don't need to go in today but it was basically this idea that people need to be awake to uh, certain realities that people in the West weren't thinking about. And so then um, I think mainly uh, right-wing commentators are then labelling progressives as woke people. So you, you are getting people labelled woke Christians or fundamentalist Christians. And there's there's a lot of debate around terms because we, we'll, we'll look at this again in future podcasts about the power of language and how important it is that people, um, you know, uh, really fight over the, the use of right language and I mean, the whole thing about personal pronouns, uh, the use of words to describe things is, is quite part of all of this actually. But um, yeah, as you said, Joel, um, uh, the new Australian government has come out this week talking about we need to end the culture wars on climate change. So they've noticed that there are all these wars over all these ideas like culture, uh, like climate change, climate action. Uh, there's issues of LGBTI uh, rights, there's issues around uh, Black Lives Matter, there's, there's a bundling around these issues that right-wing commentators would call woke. And so within churches, uh, there's a lot of people who are either on one hand reading The Guardian and watching the ABC, or on the other hand watching Sky News or Fox News, and people because of the internet can watch these uh, left-wing or 
right-wing commentaries on particular issues and they tend to be really strongly influenced by those um, medias. Uh, and so this battle of ideas, I, I prefer to call it a battle of ideas actually rather than a culture war, but I, I still think lots of people use the word culture war. But you, you see it coming out in the election that we just had in Australia where Catherine Deves has come out um, in, in her campaign talking about uh, women in sport and bringing up the whole argument about trans women in sport and then there's, uh, you know, people look through uh, her history of all her tweets and bring out things that... Uh, they disagree with and, and she then defends that, the Prime Minister comes out. Um, not only in the Liberal Party has this been a big idea, this culture war, this battle ideas, but also in the Labor Party. So the uh, the now Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was in the a big prominent newspaper in Sydney that uh, Telegraph saying, and the title, I remember walking past a news agent and the title on the newspaper headline was, I'm not woke. So there was this attempt by Albo to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Labor Party leader and I'm in the left, you know, leaning part of uh, the political conversation, but I'm not woke. So there's this whole, uh, even within our political parties, within our companies, within our schools, within our, all the different institutions in our society, there's this big conversation about this battle of ideas. And um, you mentioned the 60s, and I think it's really helpful just one more time just to, to, to say briefly that we do track back a lot of these discussions we're having now to the 1960s with the sexual revolution. Uh, the pill uh, released a whole big conversation around morality, around sexuality. There was a challenging of Christian ideas about that and that was part of the conversation. Then there was also uh, the invention of the motor car and the, and, the, and the radio, car radio, which meant that teenagers didn't have to sit around in the lounge room listening to media with their parents in the lounge room. They could get in the car and go for a drive and listen to alternative media, which in the 1960s was rock and roll music rather than the, you know, crispy clean sort of 1950s sort of safe kind of music. Uh, you see this big debate of censorship within movies and within TV about, you know, because in the early TV days, if they showed a married couple, they had to be in two separate single beds. And you'll notice on TV shows, iconic shows like The Brady Bunch, the kids will be shown brushing their teeth in the bathroom, but there's never a toilet in the bathroom. So that was the censors <laughs> had censored that out. And then that conversation morphs into the big conversation we had in the 80s about rock and roll. So there's this battle of ideas mm -hmm. about what's appropriate, what's not. And um, the French philosopher, sociologist rather, Alan Terrain, who uh, was a 1960s sociologist, talked about the fact that ideas in the 1960s were becoming more powerful definers of political uh, positions than economics. So if you look back before the 1960s, in the modern era of political uh, interaction, you will have people representing the workers um, in Australia, the Labor Party, often also representing uh, mainly a Catholic um, group of people in Australia versus the Liberal Party, which was formed in the middle of the 20th century, but that party was more Protestant and more uh, small business, individual freedom, you know, or working for, you know, people who, big business as well. And so the battle of ideas before the 1960s was around economics and the workers and the owners of the factories, basically. Uh, but in the 60s, the issues of civil rights, LGBTI rights, feminism, environmentalism, anti-war, all these big issues that we're still battling out today has changed politics and changed our institutions and parties that were quite neatly formed around economic ideas are now trying to work out where they stand on these new ideas that have been developed since the 1960s. And so there's this big battle of ideas within corporations, within political parties. I mean, the Liberal Party uh, lost the last election in Australia and there's been this massive soul-searching uh, about what is the Liberal Party supposed to do now? The Teal Independents um, ran against a lot of significant safe Liberal seats and even uh, unseated Josh Frydenberg, who was the Australian Treasurer. I've never seen that before. Uh, I mean, I've never seen politics looking so unstable and so different. But at the same time, uh, as someone who's got a political science background, it's never been more interesting to be a political scientist as you see all these new things happening because the Teals are coming up. They're not Labor Party. They're not even calling themselves a party. They're saying they're independents, but they're actually working together along uh, a couple of keynote issues, particularly climate change mm. and integrity. And so they, they unseated uh, a number of safe Liberal seats. And so Liberal Party are saying, are they lost now? Are these inner city 
blue ribbon seats lost? Do we need to focus on the suburbs and the regions? And there are others in the Liberal Party saying, no, the opposite is the case. We need to move to the left as a Liberal Party and embrace this bundle of progressive ideas if we're going to stay in power. Because the progressive ideas, whether you call them the culture wars, wokeness, whatever you call it, the, the, um, there is a change that these ideas that I, Terrain has identified in the 60s are now influencing how people vote more than their economic uh, heritage mm. issues. So big, uh, there's even uh, headlines at the moment about, you know, the Liberal Party has lost big business. Big business is no longer aligned to the Liberal Party as it has been. So there's, that's a massive economic shift. And we see it in places like um, England with Brexit. There was the people yeah. who voted for Brexit were traditionally Labor Party safe uh, seats and the inner city that was used to be you know a conservative bastion there's, there's kind of been a flip the conservatives are now winning in the in the countryside and the and the Labor Party's winning in the cities and so the the uh, same things happened in the US with Trump which we'll get back to in this podcast which is a big part of this podcast but this whole idea that Trump has uh, appealed to people outside the cities and you know he's done that in quite dramatic fashion and very controversially but yeah I think I think there's a lot of uh, it helps us a lot to see that this is a long-term change in our society and it's taking us a while to adjust to these big ideas that are coming out of the 1960s. You mentioned um, Trump just then and I think that's worth um, talking about because um, he was very much in the, the the culture wars and ran on a platform uh, against a certain position on the opposite side of the culture war but I think it's also an interesting example of that with Donald Trump getting elected, how different he was to anyone within the political system. Like he had no political experience before. He's a media personality and a businessman, and then ends up being the forty-fifth president of the United States. Um, uh, was really kind of like this kind of cult hero, almost in a sense. He's in Home Alone too, for example. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Really? He's, he turns up in a it's hotel. Got a big part. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think they were, they were. The story is they were, wanted to film in Trump Tower. the Trump tower mm-hmm. um and trump said yes as long as i get a part of it, that's the the story i've heard of it mm. so yes he has his little walk by with macaulay calkin yeah <laughs> so he was the first u.s president to be elected with no prior military or government service and that was in 2016 um we mentioned also there was a new branch of fundamentalism uh, re-emerging with him possibly preceded by the tea party which we talked about in the last episode why and I need to get your thoughts on this, guys, because I'm not really sure, though. Why did some Christians align themselves with Trump and the Team Party and some didn't? Um, we've, we talked about the fundamentalism, evangelical and progressivism. I think there's a new branch of fundamentalism, fundamentalism coming out of this. Why do we think that some Christians align themselves with that new fundamentalism and some didn't? Yeah, I mean, I, if I can try, as best as I understand it, try and... Um what do they call it? Steel man rather than straw man. The, the argument. I think the the best the best steel What's man. A steel man. The, well, it's the opposite of straw man. So a straw man <laughs> argument is where you purposely construct the worst possible version okay, of an okay. argument so you can knock it over. Mm. Uh, and steel manning an argument is trying to give the best possible version, um, even if you're then going to argue right. against it. That's mm. the sounds like the next Marvel movie. Maybe, maybe it will be steel, <laughs> steel man versus man. straw man. Yeah. Superman versus the scarecrow. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, so if I could. Uh, as best as I can understand, try, try and steel man the, uh, the fundamentalist conservative Christian right uh, and the enthusiasm they had for Trump. Um, a couple of the pieces that I've kind of seen play out there. So one is that he did come out really strongly against what many perceive to be um, the excesses of a progressive left, uh, certainly coming out of... Um, Barack Obama's time and a number of the significant cultural changes that happened there, including um, same-sex marriage um, and other things that sort of were in that progressive space. Uh, So we'd had eight years, not we, America had had eight years of um, Barack Obama. And so he comes out really firmly on the other side of that battle of ideas. Um, And so that was, that's one part of the puzzle, I think, um, was the attractiveness of that. Um, there's a lot of commentary I've seen about the because he was this media personality, he'd be, he didn't talk the language of Washington, he didn't talk the language of politics, and so there's this um, popularist idea that he was more for the common 
uh, per it's common an asylum person. majority. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That silent majority, and that tapped into a number of, um, particularly in Middle America, um, and so you'd had really dismissive um, comments again by the cultural left, who would talk about you know flyover country and you know the, all, the, and you do significantly have the biggest cities in New York and Los Angeles are on the coast, um, and so you've got these these cult. A lot of the cultural power in America is coming from the coast, um, and yet with their federalist system, you've got um, an equal distribution of Senate representation from all of these states that are in the middle that um, population-wise are far less dense than on the coast. And so he is um, seen as speaking up for that middle America, the, the states that often get mm. overlooked because they're not cultural powerhouses. And using that rhetoric of like drain the swamp. and Yes, that kind of thing. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think the other significant thing I've heard from uh, commentators who uh, tend towards that, yeah, as I said, the, the fundamentalist conservative Christian right um, is they were really wanting to make sure they voted in a um, Republican president because the Republican president has the power to appoint um, Supreme Court justices and that was a really significant thing and so another part or I don't know if we've talked about this much in the last few episodes but again for uh, the last uh, five decades the abortion debate has been really, really significant and very polarising mm. in America as well. And that's one of those issues that pushes people to either side of the extreme um, of the political spectrum, the cultural spectrum. Um, and so the uh, even those who may not have um, uh, wanted to put align themselves with the personality of Trump did still vote for the Republican and the conservative side because the values, a number of political values of the conservative side, um, but the appointment of Supreme Court justices that would have influence over the Roe versus Wade um, ruling and a couple of the subsequent abortion rulings was really, really significant. And so there are a number of commentators, some who went full throttle supportive of Trump no matter what he said, others who um, sort of stepped back from a full throated support of necessarily him as a, um, a person, but because he was representing Republican Party and conservative doctrines and had the power to appoint mm. conservative justices of the state, said um, that is worth, um, th that's important. It is, and that was a really significant thing. So there are a couple of the pieces that I've seen um, that a lot of the Christian conservative right um, voted for, for Trump and endorsed him in, to some degree at least. Yeah. And do you want anything do you want to add to that, Stu? No, I think I think also the Southern Baptists particularly were more culturally aligned with the Republican Party, I think, uh, already. And so we've also seen uh, generations of Republicans wooing the Christian vote and the particularly the evangelical vote. Uh, it's also the Catholic vote was a really significant part of that conversation as well, which do, uh, doesn't come up as much in the media in Australia in their commentary about that as well. So there is this battle of ideas that's going on since the 1960s and there are a growing number of people who are over 40 who, and maybe over 50 even who are concerned about the cultural direction of the United States. And so they're just seeing this uh, in, in some ways many people were seeing this chipping away of what they considered to be um, uh, the, the American culture, I think. And so this battle of ideas is around who are we as a country? And so the bundling of all issues, all these issues like gun control and Roe versus Wade, like Tim said, uh, the wall down south uh, where there was this concern by many southerners of the number of people coming across from Mexico into the southern states. Um, so there was this bundling of ideas around all that, yet the, the uh, disproportionate influence of particular city dwellers in the country. Uh, even though America is a federation, it's got all these different states and they're all quite different to each other, as Tim said. So uh, states like Oregon uh, sometimes seem to uh, some people to have a, uh, a bigger voice than states like um, Arizona, for example. So there's, there's these kind of issues that are bubbling away. Um, but on the other hand, there's a reaction against Trump by the progressive Christians, often younger uh, Christians that are already concerned about 
issues like climate change, uh, really concerned about the George Floyd incident, for example, and uh, really happy to, to march with Black Lives Matter. Uh, there's a bundling of issues around that that then causes them to see Donald Trump as sexist, or they'd go further and say misogynist, um, misogynist, uh, racist, and, and um, representing this old America that we're trying to replace with, well, they were trying to replace with, with, with a new, more progressive uh, America with these new progressive ideas. So uh, even his language was uh, a, a, a flashpoint, I think. The sorts of things that he would say is really important to people. And again, like I said earlier, we can come back to this in later episodes about how important language is. But some of the outrageous things that Donald Trump would say really triggered people uh, who were looking for... Um, creating an America with safe spaces where people could um, be safe to share their own pronouns, then he's almost rudely crashing in on that culture. So there's there's a heightened um, energy in the media. Uh, I think CNN uh, viewer numbers went through the roof when Donald Trump was on because people were looking at all these outrageous things that he was saying and watching a more, I suppose, more left-leaning broadcast. But then after... Um, all the incidences at the Capitol, which we could probably get to, um, then there's this real soul-searching amongst a lot of right-wing Christians about actually what does this man stand for too. And I think it's interesting Biden gets in after uh, Trump's mishandling of the COVID crisis because despite all his bluster and his um, uh, promises around really caring about middle America, when it came to COVID, it was just like, oh, it's over, Like, let's just get on with business. And it seems to be quite uncaring. And I think uh, Biden getting in off the back of that uh, era was quite interesting. So yeah, it's a really tumultuous time in American mm. history, actually. Mm. And the reason we're talking about it is because tumultuous times in American history affect us too, because, because we're so culturally aligned to America since the Second World War. So in the late 60s and early 70s, when there were all the student rights in America and the monitoriums and all, all of those things came to Australia as well and similarly um, we see even during lockdown Black Lives Matter protests in Melbourne and Sydney and other capitals just like there were Black Lives protests in America and um, there was almost a um, yeah just a, a transference of these ideas from one continent to, to another because of the internet it could happen really quickly like I said to the day after George, George Floyd uh, sprang up. There's a black um, Instagram post that's going around the world where everyone feels a part of something that's happening. It's not just an American phenomenon now. It's a, it's going right across the world. I was just going to say the other difficulty in in talking about the this uh, the political situation in America and how it maps onto evangelicalism, which has kind of been what mm. we're trying to tease apart and talk about. Yep. Um, is when you've got this, you've got this bundling that we've talked about, where um, evangelical starts to um, get uh, brought into all of these other um, conservative right-wing um, political ideas, and so to be evangelical is to also hold all of these ideas. And we've talked about the ex-evangelical movement, who are people who are trying to say, well, I think I like Jesus, but I'm not sure about all these cultural and political mm. perspectives, and and they're not. Where do I? therefore land. Uh, you've got evangelicals, as we've defined it, who are trying to l live that middle line um, and not be um, progressive left, not be fundamentalist right, but just trying to preach the gospel, the, the Mark 1, uh, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom has come. Um, the other thing, on the other hand, that's happened is because uh, the label of evangelical has landed with all of this bundling of conservative political and cultural ideas, is you have a whole lot of people who... Um, align with the political cultural ideas who take on the label of evangelical when they have no particular personal faith. Um, and that makes it really difficult to work out what's going on as well. Um, so there's one uh, sociologist, a guy called Ryan Burge, who did um, some, a whole lot of polling and study. Uh, one of the things he found was that almost 20% of those who self-identify as evangelical either never or seldom attend church. And so what you have is you've got a whole lot of these people that are saying, oh, yeah, I'm an evangelical. I'll, I'll self-describe as an evangelical. If a pollster rings me, I'll say I'm an evangelical. So they're using that label. But if we go back to the history of evangelicalism, um, we talked about um, the Bebbington quadrilateral. Um, 
and that idea that you know an evangelical who believes that the Bible is a particular word of God, uh, that the the focus on the atoning work of Christ and the cross, conversion isn't the belief that every human being needs to be converted, and the activism that belief in the gospel needs to be expressed um, in effort and, and outside the self. Yeah, you know, that kind of evangelicalism, which was the feature of Wesley and um, Edwards and Stott and J.I. Packer and all those kind of people that we've talked about as being that through line, here is you know, almost 30% of people who are using that label but actually have no, it would seem, have no personal expression of the faith that's tied to that. Um, the implication of all of that is you hear these news statistics and you hear these reports of all these evangelicals who voted for Trump, uh, for example, and it's like, well, okay, that they did, but... Um, how do you understand that number? Is, mm. it, is it that 80% of people with a personal faith in Jesus who love the Lord Jesus and are seeking to live it out in their own life and in their community voted for Trump? Mm. <laughs> or is it people who are, uh, have bought into this bundle are using the language of the bundle um, and that confuses it all as well. So that makes a huge mess of all of this. Um, and there's also, and this comes out with the Black Lives Matter movement as well, is you you do seem to have a statistically significant racial divide as well. So you have um, a significant number of African-American Christians who will identify as Jesus-loving, faith-believing, Bible-believing, going to church weekly, Jesus is their personal Lord and Saviour who affects their personal and communal life, who don't vote Republican, they vote Democrat. Mm. Um, And so they will um, seem to be on the progressive left culturally um, and politically and and that makes a huge mess of it as well because uh, you've just got this all of these different labels being thrown around people assuming what the label means um, putting it into bite-sized pieces and you then read that however you want to read it and it just the whole thing becomes really convoluted and I think what we're trying to do a little bit is uh, and again as outside observers as Australians not Americans trying to notice tease out and think about what the implications of all this are with that idea of we actually just really want Jesus to be known. We want the gospel to be preached. We want people to come into living relationship with him um, and we want to see them flourish as, as uh, members of the kingdom. And, yeah. yeah, and two things on that. First of all, that even though we're saying that we're culturally tied to America more and more since the Second World War, we watch their movies, we listen to their music and have their fashions and all, all the rest that goes along with it, even eat their food with McDonald's and KFC becoming <laughs> really big after the Second World War mm. in Australia as well as America. But there are really important differences between Australia and America. And I think sometimes our media commentators conflate Australian evangelicals with mm. American evangelicals. Right. And I think we've got to be really careful not to do that. So some of the uh, Christian young people in our churches are not wanting to be Trump supporters. So they're, they're becoming ex-evangelicals which is almost irrelevant because we're in Australia. But it's irrelevant because <laughs> he's the president of the United States. He's yeah. not He's not Australian. Mm-hmm. And so there's this real soul-searching amongst the Australian church about certain things. But one thing that's really importantly different between America and Australia is I think American nominalism is still a bigger thing in America than it is in Australia mm. because nominalism started to decline in Australia in the 1960s and same as in England. So we've become more secular, I suppose, than America have. So some of this uh, equating evangelicalism with political power is more of an um, issue in America than it is in Australia. So nominal, nominalism is in decline. The, the amount of people calling themselves Christians on the census year by year goes down quite dramatically. But I think what's happening is it's people in Australia who would say call themselves an Anglican oh yeah I'm an Anglican but they've never been to church and now in Australia saying well actually I'm not an Anglican I'm not a Christian uh, I have no faith whereas in America I don't think they've got to that yet mm. so they're still identifying as evangelical but they're cultural evangelicals they're not they're not spiritual yeah um, people who have been born again and yes. so that's the very issue we're trying to get to here that words are really powerful and we're trying to reclaim that word evangelical even though many people in the media would frame us up as um, either fundamentalists or progressive evangelicals we're just trying to say well we're evangelicals we're people of the book and we do go to church and we we do pray and we do uh, help the poor and we do um, preach the gospel and we yeah the, all those things are still the same as they were 50 60 a thousand two thousand years ago mm. do you think that's the answer I mean Tim you were talking about bundling and I think that's an outcome of polarisation 
um, which I think that we all agree that the internet has increased in. So I saw an article recently by um, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote mm. The Coddling of the American Mind, and he said that there's a there's a shift in Facebook's, um, the way that they allowed posts to be viewed, and when they've shifted to a more algorithmic yeah. way of doing it, so you can, uh, they can make more money off doing more individualized mm. ads, that they found that posts that were had much more negative con- connotations had much more interaction with them. So that's what, for one example of the way that polarization continued to occur from, I think it was, it was probably after about 2011 is when they started to see that this was actually happening. Um, we talk about the culture war and the, the idea of how we, we're battling with ideas. And um, I know I've brought up Mark Sayers a lot on this podcast because mm. I enjoy his cultural commentary, but he talks a lot about how networks and institutions are losing their power. So there's this void of them trying to actually find their power. And I think that adds to the polarization. Mm. I mean, I'm even thinking about how now media. We spoke. You spoke about media just before, Stu. Is that um, there's these there's formation of now independent media coming out that we now don't even trust our independent our, our traditional media sources. Mm. We need to find new ways of finding out news that we're actually interested in and actually want to know the truth mm. about. I think that's also it's a search for truth. So there's mm. a, there's um, a couple of there's a YouTube channel called Breaking Points, which is in America, and sometimes I don't really get into it too much but sometimes when there is something interesting that I, I go to them because I know that they're going to be independent or at least as independent as possible um, why do you think that we're searching for truth so much uh, and how, how can we help people to find the real truth which we believe is holding on to the evangelical line the real truth is the good news how do we as leaders and I know there's a lot of church leaders listening to the podcast as well how do we help our the people that we're ministering to and also the people that are just within our churches, how do we hold on to that evangelical line? I, th- I think one of the answers is that I think people straight up, uh, and you mentioned Mark Sayers, one thing uh, Mark Sayers said is don't straight up maybe have an opinion on things straight away. Right. That I think I've heard him a couple of times on his podcast say things like, I still don't know what I think about this particular thing yet or this particular thing. So I don't think we have to rush to a decision on, you know, we can watch it a little bit and, and see what's happening. Just wait and be careful. And, you know, so many um, really helpful passages in the Bible about, you know, be slow to speak and be slow to anger. Um, and that a fool just says the first thing that comes into his mind. But in this age we're in, it's almost like this pressure to say something straight away because we're all on Twitter, we're all on Facebook or mm. Instagram. We need to have opinions. Well, actually, we don't We don't have to straight away jump on. Not, not that we... Uh, need to neglect big issues either like I think it's important that we engage in those things but to be just thoughtful and prayerful about that uh, is is the first thing but the second thing I'd say is I think the Bible is it we 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 assume that we're thinking biblically every time we speak and we assume that we're still seeing the Bible as our main message but sometimes it isn't I think sometimes Christians get caught up in how should we approach Australia Day? Should we have it on the 26th of January or not? And that urgent issue comes up every year in the media. And so Christians have opinions on that on Facebook and they talk about it a lot. And so uh, what what they then can do is the next issue rolls around and then the next one and then all of a sudden we're talking about uh, maybe plastic straws or talking about whether we have uh, clean energy or whether we should burn less coal or then the next you know, there might be uh, the month comes up a Pride Month and then Australian, Australian Christians are talking about that maybe. Um, but what I'm thinking is really important is when you look at um, the Bible, it's it's God's word. Uh, it's timeless and it's the only book, it's the only word that is God-breathed. So there is nothing else. There is no media, there is no website, there is no podcast that is God-breathed except for the word of God. And so I think we neglect the word of God at our peril. Mm. And I think we really need to rediscover not only uh, making sure that we're preaching the word of God faithfully in our churches, but that we're reading it uh, in our churches, that we're actually also individually responsible for um, coming to the Bible regularly and reading the Bible. And, you know, the biggest thing I hear people say still today, like after 30 years of ministry, when I talk about reading the Bible, um, one thing hasn't changed over 30 years. People are still saying they're too busy to read the Bible. But I remember back in a time when people didn't have Facebook, they didn't have social media. And I think to myself, why were they too busy to read the Bible when they didn't have... Well, they were saying they were watching TV and they were watching, listening to the radio. And now that's changed into, well, 
you know, I'm, I'm too busy, I'm working, I've got all this stuff to do. But the amount of time, you know, my, my phone tells me I'm on social media is quite remarkable. Like I spend a lot of time like scrolling through um, bland posts and some, you know, clickbait or whatever it might be. But, but how much, and, I know, and there's some great resources uh, on our phones now that can help us to read the Bible too. I think we really need to be studying the Word of God and thinking about how do we apply the Word of God in our context. Yes, so we need to kind of audit our media diets in a way. And yeah, I just think I think the Bible is is our resource and the yeah, Bible yeah. is our podcast. Our the Bible source. is our media. That's mm. that's what we need to read culture through and we need to keep making sure we see things the way God sees things, not mm. the way a particular commentator who calls himself a Christian sees it. The Bible is our our authority and it's the word of God that we need to listen to most, even more than Christian commentators mm. or secular commentators. Or uh, any kind of media. It's more just like, yeah, make the Bible our number one source of media. That's yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I was just remembering on Timothy Paul Jones, he was saying also that how do we make our congregations in our churches a place where that polarization doesn't matter? It's mm. like, how do we make that a welcoming place? For anyone to come in and he used the example of whether you're a republican or democrat or mm. you believe uh different things around anything really it's so i was just wondering tim maybe you can go first on this how do we make our congregations that kind of place you talked about a long time ago through a semi-permeable membrane for anyone to come in and out of is that what we should continue to be looking at we can stay evangelical but we can still make it a welcoming place yeah well i think there's, there's two issues there and kind of tease them apart um so one is uh, we want to be welcoming to those who are not yet Christians. And so in that sense, we, that, I think that's with that semi-permeable membrane idea is that people can come and they can um, watch, participate, have uh, listening to the conversation of the church um, and can hopefully we're um, participating as a faith community in such a way that that's an attractive thing and they can say, oh, that's interesting, I want to play part of this. And we've certainly seen um, members who've become members of our church, become Christians, who started as those who were on the outside of faith um, and have spent significant time with us uh, and learnt to see what it means to be a Christian. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully by God's Spirit, they have come to a point of transformation and come into the kingdom and repent and believe the good news. Um, so that we would certainly want that to be the case. That our faith communities are acting in such a way that it is a welcoming place for the outsider, that there is um, transparency there. Uh, I think one of the um, unwanted uh, but positive side effects of COVID lockdown is that a number of churches went online. And so our, what happened in relative privacy, I suppose, as it happened inside buildings, became outside. And so there'd already been maybe a decade where people had often podcast um, their sermons or things like that. So that was starting to be a way in which people could check out um, the Jesus story for themselves. But when um, a large chunk of the Western world went under lockdown restrictions and people turned to putting post services and other things up online, there were a lot of people who were exploring uh, what it meant to be a Christian or be a person of faith by listening into a lot of those conversations. So there was a transparency there. So I think that created a... Um, semi-permeable membrane where people could watch in on Christians gathering together, they could watch in on um, as a sermon and a service and singing and prayers and life together uh, and that was really helpful. So that, that's kind of one part of what I heard you asking. I think that's, and that's really important that we keep doing that. Um, the other thing which, which um, to think about is how do we create a space for believers who may have different so if you've got people who love the Lord Jesus, are committed to his work, committed to fellowshipping together, but have different views. Um, and I guess, again, you've then got to triage what are those different views. Um, if a different view is a different view on the authority of scripture, on the centrality of the atonement, um, on the need for a personal expression, those kind of quadrilateral type things, again, um, Apostles' Creed type Christianity statements, um, then we can say to them, yeah, we, we love you, but we actually think you're outside the faith if you don't have particular um, commitments to, you know, Apostles' Creed type doctrinal statements. Um, but then there's going to be a lot of other things that are a lot further down the triage line 
and it might be political party alignment, it might be different views on cultural issues, where we want to be able to say, um, we can be a big enough church for those and let's think about them together, let's talk about them together. And the important thing, and I think I've said this a few times in different episodes, all of that is under the authority of scripture. Um, and this is perhaps the biggest challenge that we face. I'm, I don't know how to solve this myself, but this idea that um, the Bible presents itself as an authority that is outside of our own experiences. Uh, and I know, Joel, you and I are reading at the moment The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self um, by Carl Truman, which is just a really excellent book with huge explanatory power. Um, and one of the things that he talks about is when you have this inward turn and your authority is in your own feelings and in your own psychology, you reject all external authorities and you must bend all external voices to the importance of your own psychology and your own inner voice. Um, that is the culture that we're swimming in, um, that we, many of our young people particularly don't realise they're swimming in. It's like the, the fish in the water wondering what water is. Um, it, they, they don't realise that this is what they're being primed for, um, is to think of their own inner self, their own inner psychology as the ultimate source of authority. Um, but Christianity says something radically different. Um, Christianity says, no, there's an external authority, uh, which is the God, the creator and Lord of the entire universe, who has revealed himself to us in scripture. Um, and so in some sense, it, I'm a whole person and God made me with feelings, but I need to bring my own self, my own thoughts, my own beliefs, my own feelings, my um, psychology in line with what he has revealed about the universe. Um, rather than flipping that around. But as um, Carl Truman really helpfully points out, in our cultural moment, that has been flipped around. And so your question, how do we do this? I, I'm not quite sure, but part of it needs to be this constant training of our people um, to be countercultural and see the Bible as an authority that, that we um, commit ourselves to and sit underneath of. But, Again, this kind of collapse of the sacred canopy that Berger talks about, that's a significant part of it, is when we don't have this unified understanding, we all submit ourselves to the Bible's authority. Even as Christians, we struggle with that because of how we've grown up, that it's a really significant thing to retrain our people to commit to those things. And the challenge, coming back to some of the things that Stu said, is uh, our people spend a lot more time on social media than they do in the Bible. Um, I mean, so we're being discipled by that rather than discipled by the yeah. Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to and even if, like that. Yeah, and even if you are largely in alignment with what the three of us are talking about, um, you've probably spent about 90 minutes now listening to us. Have you spent 90 minutes today listening to the Bible, reading the mm-hmm. Bible? Like, if you've listened to us more than you've read the Bible, then who's doing the discipling? It's mm-hmm. three fallible guys who are trying their hardest, but we're not the authoritative mm-hmm. right. you know, scriptures. The scripture yeah. is. Um, and I think for most people, that is the challenge. Um, and certainly, again, there's a lot of commentary about this where if people are being discipled by CNN and The Guardian on one end or Fox News or Sky News on the other end, if they're spending six hours a day in that kind of yeah. media environment um, and one hour a week in church, well, who's really doing the discipling? It's not the church, it's not the scriptures, and that's one of the biggest challenges I think we face with a hyper-connected world and hyper-connected members. Um, sure, I know that you need to go, so we, we should wrap it up. I just have one more question. Is we, we entitled this podcast, this episode, No Wonder People Don't Want to Share Their Faith. Mm. And some of the things we talk about is the polarisation, the culture wars, the battle of ideas. The world is a, a controversial place. Um, we talked um, back at the start of the season, the Barna Research. People feel well-equipped about the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus and, and salvation and everything like that but they don't feel like they're willing to share it. Is that because they feel lost in those kind of battle of ideas and they don't know how to continue to be a Christian and perhaps hold on to that evangelical line that we're talking about? Mm. I, I think we've, we, again, TPJ said that something that I thought was really helpful that we, we were resonating with in the podcast uh, last one, uh, that we need to focus on Jesus. Mm. And I think we really, really need to focus on Jesus in our generation today. And uh, in his book, Joined Up Life, Andrew Cameron had a really cool phrase that I really loved. And he talked about churches being Jesus-shaped communities. And 
I think if you get a big bunch of Jesus-shaped individuals who are part of a Jesus-shaped community, uh, what we realise is that Jesus has already done everything necessary for our salvation. Uh, we keep coming back to Ephesians a lot, and uh, in that book, uh, Andrew Cameron comes back to Ephesians talking about the the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God through the cross and that he's reconciled us to one another through the cross. And all that's left for us to do is express that, not not win that. And so, yes, there's a lot of problems around in the world and a lot of people are offering solutions to those problems and we should look at the problems and we should look for solutions. But at the end of the day, the most pressing need that every human being has is they need to know Christ because Christ says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me in John 15. And he's basically offering humanity the solution to our biggest problem, which is our own sin. And so we spend so much time classifying sin and we say that group's sinful, that group's sinful, and we're righteous and they're not righteous. And, you know, we've lost the uh, opportunity to repent in our culture these days. It's like if someone's written a tweet 20 years ago uh, that, well, there wasn't Twitter twenty years ago, but a tweet a long time ago. Ten, we'll go ten when years. they were twenty. And yeah. now they're you know, you know, they might have written some inappropriate thing years ago and someone finds it and they say, Oh look, I'm sorry for that. But that's not enough. It's no no no, you need to say sorry again, even though you've said sorry. And then you okay, this whole idea of cancel culture, which I don't know whether we want to get into censorship in our day and age. Some people call it cancel culture, some people just call it censorship. But there's always censorship in every generation. But there are, there are different sins in every generation and there are different cultural sins that people focus on uh, at certain times. But the Bible's really helpful to say that the problem with the world is not just outside of myself, I'm part of the problem. And the thing I love about the gospel is that I can be humble and honest about that and the solution is outside of myself in another person who's been able to actually uh, deal with that problem. Mm. And by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus does actually offer us a new spiritual life that if we believe in him and trust him and accept him then we can actually uh, live the spiritual life empowered by the holy spirit that he gives to all those who believe in him we have the promise of eternal life and a hope in eternity and the thing i like to say is that if we're not afraid of dying we're not afraid of living so i think the first step is for us not to be scared of living in this world not to look at the world as though you know it's it's impossible for us to uh, survive and thrive as Christians in this world. Well, actually, Christians in every generation have survived and thrived because they have um, a living relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus. And when we gather together as Christians, we can have different opinions on things like politics and still be in the same church. There are some churches that are right-wing churches. There are some churches that are left-wing churches. There are some pulpits where people will preach left-wing politics as part of the message and some right-wing. And um, what we're trying to do in our church as a revival is say let's preach the gospel and have a conversation about faith that's centered on jesus not a, not around politics but the thing about andrew cameron's um jesus shaped community is as we do that that is a political reality and one of the first things i learned in political science is that the very simple definition of politics is how do people organize themselves and they often organize themselves as right wing or left wing but we also organize ourselves as christians and so there are really interesting things we can talk about in future episodes like submission. When Jesus talks about submit to God and submit to one another, what does that look like? What, what, you know, that, that's an interesting conversation to have. Um, how do we uh, look for justice in this world? How do we, how do we uh, defend the weak and how do we actually be humble in a proud an arrogant world how do we share our resources in a materialistic world a lot of the questions that our society is asking are answered by jesus and one thing i'd like to leave us with is right back in the 1960s where a lot of these issues bubbled up um, fairly prominently for the first time uh, in 1971 there was the emergence of this jesus movement which is pretty much forgotten by our culture now but it was huge where thousands and thousands and thousands of young people actually found answers to the questions of their generation in Jesus. So answers on, you know, the Beatles said all they need is, all, all you need is love and then they broke up. But 
the Jesus people said, well, yeah, we believe in love too, but Jesus is love. He gives us the definition. And I think it's only a matter of time before people start looking back at Jesus and go, you know what? He has a lot of answers to these questions we're having. And the reason we have this podcast is we love a conversation about faith and we love looking to him for the answers. Uh, and if anybody is keen after this podcast to feel like getting back into reading something in the Bible after mm-hmm. this podcasting, yeah, actually, I've got a new conviction to get into the Bible. Maybe a great place to, to start reading today might be Matthew 5 and to reread Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just embrace the amazing teaching in that that is still so relevant to so many of the issues we have today. For example, the culture wars. Well, Jesus says, love your enemy. Amazing. Like, you don't hear that on a podcast, left wing or right wing, but you hear it from Jesus. Yeah. Excellent way to finish. Thank, thank you, Stu. Um, uh, that's going to take us to the end of this episode, of course. We've kind of also taken us to the end of where we're looking at the overview of history and how uh, the evangelical line goes right from the beginning from Jesus all the way through to now. But from now on in the season about evangelism, we're going to look at some models of evangelism that, we can, that we've seen emerge at this time, but also that can help us tell people about Jesus and do exactly what you're saying there, Stu. Uh, but to finish off this episode, uh, thank you very much, guys, for being on. Uh, we are going to be on Discord this Friday at 1 p.m. Mm, if you want to keep chatting about, about this stuff. We're starting about uh, thinking about a Shock Absorber Network and chatting to people about different ideas that we're talking about on the podcast. So if you're keen on doing that, 1 p.m. Sydney time or Eastern Australian time <laughs> uh, on Discord and we'll be on there. So check that out. Uh, you can also, if you just want to get involved in the conversation, you can email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We'd love to um, keep uh, chatting with you every week. Uh, and that Discord link will be in the show notes too. So if you need that, that'll jump on that. Check out soulrevival.shop if you're interested in buying some uh, uh, some of the clothes that we make. All of our profits go to our Indigenous ministry partners. Thank you again very much, you and Tim. We'll finish yeah. with a one-way. Thanks, one listeners, way. as well. One way. One way.